before we jump into the show, I just want to give a quick announcement. Recently, you may have noticed that we've been experimenting with adding adverts to some of our episodes. Now, this isn't something that we necessarily want to do, but unfortunately, to be able to take the podcast to the next level, it's something that we have to start exploring. At the moment, myself and Mateus record the podcast as a hobby. We also have an amazing editor, Shan, who edits every episode, and he has been doing so for free. However, we feel that we are now at the peak level where the podcast can go without having some sort of revenue to be able to invest in better equipment and pay staff. We understand that adverts can be annoying. So we will do our absolute best to keep them to a minimum and also keep them from being too intrusive. We'll also try to choose adverts that are the most relevant to you guys as the listeners. For those of you who really dislike ads, we will be looking at having ad-free versions of every episode available on Patreon. We'll also be looking at having video episodes and bonus Q&A episodes for those who support us on the Patreon platform. We really appreciate you bearing with us whilst we just try out these different avenues to find out which one not only works for us, but also works for you guys as the listener. Thank you for supporting us and thank you for sticking with us. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. Horns of Odin is a husband and wife run business based in what would have been the heart of Viking Britain, Yorkshire. We specialise in drinking horns and horn mugs, which are entirely handmade by me in our own workshop. We sand, carve and polish each piece before lining the inside with a food grade beeswax. All horns and mugs can now be customised by adding a copper or brass rim, or by adding a name in either English or runes, or you may wish to add both. We're offering listeners to this podcast an exclusive deal of anything store-wide. Simply use the code HORNS10 at checkout to save yourself, you guessed it, 10% off your order. Head over to www.hornsofodin.com to check out our extensive range of products. Right, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello. We have a very special guest today. Uh, I'm probably going to butcher the name, so I'll get him to pronounce it for us after. And that's Arne Grimmer. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, hi, I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> I'm not too bad. So, like I said, I'm sure I butchered your name. Um, if you could maybe clear it up for us a little bit. Yeah, it's a funny little story. that uh, It's actually the only name in Icelandic that I have uh, a problem pronouncing because uh, I was born with a speech impediment uh, that I had to do years of work on as a kid, pronouncing the uh, Icelandic world R. Uh, and so this is the only bit left that I have a, a bit of a problem with. I, I always sort of hesitate when saying my own name. Um, <laughs> so it's because, it's because of the... Uh, is RN cluster that is pronounced as RDN in Icelandic, and then comes GR right after. So it's like this hard cluster of consonants there. And so the first part is Ard, uh, and, the, and the second part is Grimur. And most people would just say Argrimur. Yeah. I, I always want the RDN part enunciated, so I sort of hesitate and Ard. <laughs> 
screamers. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's that it's that rolling of the R's that you struggled with as a child. Yeah. Also, apparently, Borm is something called an English Ash. Uh, sorry, sorry, S. Uh, uh, and uh, that sounded like Sean Connery. Ash. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I guess we... Well, I guess us Brits kind of lost the ability to roll the R's a long time ago. I know I struggle terribly with it. <laughs> you know, actually, the R is like the letter that we Danes, we hate. We, we yeah. completely obliterate it. it. It does not exist in, in, in Danish any longer. Like, only in like, <laughs> the beginning of words, like um, like the word travel, reise, right? We have still yeah. have a little bit of a uh, but aside from that, you just get rid of it. <laughs> Exactly. You're so lazy. You're like, you look Matthias Novi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've been practicing the Icelandic R, so uh, I, I think I can say Arkrimur. Was yeah. that okay? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm probably just going to kind of sidestep saying your name the whole episode now. <laughs> <laughs> so, when it, is, that, is that sound that rolled R? Is that obviously it's quite common in Icelandic, I assume now, is that something that dates all the way back to Old Norse? Is that something that appears all, you know, all the way back there? Yeah, as, as far as I can tell, it does. Actually, that R is the oldest R that humans have. Like that, that is the, the, the oldest way to pronounce it, an R, as far as I know. Um, the, the, uh, that um, laryngeal... Uh, are that like ends up somewhere down in your throat that the Germans and Danes and uh, French have. That is actually a relatively new invention that comes from Paris. Um, I think from the 16, 1700s is when they start pronouncing R's that way because it sounds cooler or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so you can you can sort of like draw draw like a a, a circle around Paris in in a certain diameter where you know that. A weird R, um, yeah, is is active, and outside of that circle, it's still the dental R, the Icelandic rolling rolling R. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I mean, I'm I'm not a you know a phoneticist as such, so I I don't know everything about phonetics, but um, but then you also have that you know weird American R. I I'm not sure that's the same. Um, it sounds different to me, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and then in s- several words, they also just drop it, you know, like February. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, so do, do we know why that kind of disappeared? Is it just a case of humans being lazy? Uh, with the dental R? No, to say like in in English, in, I will never roll an R. You know, there isn't a word that exists in my vocabulary where I would roll an R. So obviously with it being the art the rolled out being the oldest, is there a reason why now that's just, especially in like the UK, it's just completely gone? Yeah, so the, the, it's a, it was a trend. Like it was a trend to pronounce the R's that way. And and uh, we, uh, uh, those like uh, uh, European cultures that thought uh, of themselves as the coolest cultures out there, right? Col- colonizing cultures. So that was be, be the French, the uh, the. Germans and the English, and the Danes, right? We we started picking up on that Parisian R, and then we had the peoples living in our colonies that would include Iceland at the time, right? Uh, yeah. uh, 
start pronouncing the, those R's the same way. Like literally, like the, the rolling R would be considered uh, in a in as like you know Danish imperial context. The rolling R would be considered um, you know lower ranking. So you'd be made fun of if you rolled your R in Copenhagen if you were in Iceland, you know, that kind of shit. So yeah, no, it's uh, that's how it, co- it came about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not even like it's it's just lazy not to do it. Like my voice or my, my you know, my tongue, my mouth just does not make that sound. No matter how much I try make that rolling out, it just will not do it. Yeah. Yeah. I had to work for mine. So it's... <laughs> is, is it a case of that if you just practice and practice and practice, then you will eventually be able to do it again? Is that, is that I mean, I guess, is that just what you did as a child was just practice Practice makes perfect. Yeah, my t- I mean, the, the sound came out right, but my tongue escaped my mouth while I was saying it, so I kind of looked ridiculous while I was talking. Uh, I remember my schoolmates, they didn't make fun of me, but they asked, like, how do you do that? That's pretty neat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I finally, uh, uh, I think I was, uh, I was 12 when I, finally dropped my old ways of speaking and just uh, decided to really just keep my tongue in my mouth while speaking. So, <laughs> You know what? It's the same with me and S's. Like I, I, when I was a kid, I had a huge lisp when I was saying an S uh, mm-hmm. and then slowly over the years, I've learned to keep my tongue in my mouth when I say S's. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's always, you know, some practice that comes with speaking languages, I guess. Um, even your own. <laughs> we just cut all the letters off everything, and everything just sounds like we've been really lazy. Don't pronounce anything properly. <laughs> so, Angrima, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Obviously, you know you've done a, a lot of training, a lot of studying. Yeah, so uh, I, I did a BA in Icelandic uh, language and literature at the University of Iceland. Uh, at the time when I thought that might be enough to, you know, score a job as something. And, uh, and then I figured out maybe I should leave this stupid country of mine because, uh, you know, we had the banking crisis in 2008 with the total collapse of the Icelandic economy. And so in 2009, I discovered the marvel that is Aarhus in Denmark. And the uh, university Yay. there, <laughs> my hometown. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I, I decided to uh, to move there uh, in the following year. So I just figured I, I thought, what do I have to do to finish my BA so I can move there next year? Turns out that was a lot. I had uh, finished less than less than half of my degree, uh, so I finished. I think 98 ECTS in a single winter, uh, which almost killed me mentally (laughs) Uh, for the sole purpose of moving to Denmark uh, and enjoying life in my newfound paradise. (laughs) I think, you know, 98 ECTS, that corresponds to like a year and a half of like work at least, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's pretty impressive. (laughs) It's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. I, I was near breakdown at the end, but uh, it worked out, and I moved to Denmark uh, to uh, start my masters. Uh, 
Uh, I think uh, formally I have a master's in uh, Scandinavian languages and literature, which uh, actually also means that I have uh, a teaching permit in Denmark in high schools, which yeah, is interesting. Absolutely. Because yeah. I don't have one in Iceland. <laughs> uh, well, technically, I, I, yeah, you could you could get hired to teach Danish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I have a master's in Danish. Oh, wow. So, what was um, what was Denmark like? You you just called it a paradise. Now, Matthias always downplays Denmark on the the podcast. He makes it out to be this uh, kind of grey, drudgy place. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, you know, sometimes it feels like, you know, I don't know, London in the 70s or something. Nah, okay, just kidding. <laughs> but no, no, it's, uh, I, I always, I, I sort of have a love-hate relationship with Denmark. I really like uh, so many things about the country. Uh, but I I don't really enjoy living there uh, for some reason. So And I've done that a few times. <laughs> I, I lived there for a year doing all my courses in uh, my master's program. Uh, and then I moved to Iceland again uh, and wrote my dissertation here. Uh, and then I've been there twice for a combination of like seven months uh, as a visiting scholar in Copenhagen. Um, and I, I really enjoy going there. And actually, it's one of the first places I'll revisit uh, once this coronavirus thing is uh, out of our way, if that ever happens. <laughs> yeah, if that ever happens. Yeah. Uh, and actually, my favorite hat store is in Copenhagen. I have several hats from there. <laughs> That's uh, that, I don't think I've ever heard anybody ever have a favorite hat store. So I'm going to have to ask you about the hat store. What? Uh, it's called uh, Petit Gas. It's on Kødmager, uh in uh, downtown Copenhagen. Uh, the reason I particularly like it is that uh, it's really small and it's really old. It's... Uh, I think it was founded in the early 19th century and the owner is really knowledgeable about hats uh, and he has a good range of Italian Borsellino hats, which are my favorite. Oh, okay. Um, I have four of those. Uh, <laughs> that sounds so, a little more where... fancy than my uh, regular trucker caps. <laughs> that <I'm very> <laughs> <laughs> it's very rarely that I ever see you without a, a hat on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, people people have started asking me if like I'm going bald or something, and that's why. <laughs> it's like, no, it's I did wonder guy. that. <laughs> no, no, I have <laughs> hair. Like, actually, I, I no, I. <laughs> like, <laughs> you usually, from past experience, you tend to find that people who always wear a hat tend to be losing their hair a little bit. Yeah, no, that's not me. It's it's just I I just, uh, you know the the. Trucker cap hillbilly look just suits me better, I guess. That that's just me. <laughs> I always like doing a suit, though. Oh, thank you, thank you. And I I do wear a suit once in a while, so yeah, it happens. <laughs> I I couldn't imagine you in a suit now. Oh yeah, you, well you would be surprised. <laughs> do you do you wear a suit when when teaching? Obviously, when you did have to go into class. Um. So. Sometimes I would. So actually, this is this is a little weird. I um I either look like this, the the trucker cap and the black t shirt, um, and a pair of jeans, sneakers, or a three piece suit. So it's like it's it's either it's either completely street or okay. posh. I I don't know why. That's just me. <laughs> All right, so 
So Anglima, where whereabouts are you now? What are you what are you teaching at the minute? Yeah, so uh I'm in Iceland now. Uh finished my PhD uh, three years ago. Uh so I'm practic practically moving out of that whole uh postdoc availability thing. <laughs> uh and I've never actually had a postdoc. Uh so I I started to teach high school. Uh and and then last year I was hired as adjunct professor at the University of Iceland in the School of Education. So I'm uh, teaching future teachers uh, how to teach, I suppose. Uh, and uh, mainly I, I teach literature courses, both uh, literary theory and creative writing. Okay. Is that is that kind of all in Old Norse or, or is Old Norse just a part of? It's a small part of what I teach. I um, Most of my... Uh, my classes are for modern literature, and there's only okay. one course uh, in the education school that is uh, specifically for uh, sort of pre-modern literature. And so there I get a free reign of my uh, lovely, uh, yeah, Old norse things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to ask how much is Old Norse taught in in schools in Iceland, I guess, you know, over in England, there's absolutely none of it. We don't really get taught any other languages, and you know they try to kind of teach us French and German, but being, you know, being the you know the the Brits that we are, we kind of just ignore it or do our best to get through the lessons without learning anything at all. Yeah, they they don't make you read, you know, Geoffrey of Monmouth or something like that. <laughs> I don't think they made us read any any books. I think it was they they teach you a few words and a few phrases, and most of the time you kind of pretend you're listening because you know you're you're a teenager and you you don't being the ignorant you know the ignorant british teenager you kind of think well most people speak english anyway so why do i need to learn french or why do i need to learn german and as an adult now i wish that i'd, I'd listened and and taken a little bit more on board but you don't when you're when you're a kid yeah there's always duolingo right <laughs> yeah we should do an old Norse Duolingo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, we have uh uh looking at it broadly, we could uh we could see it like just we start with the Icelandic history bit uh quite early in school. Um and when I was in uh in elementary school we did uh I think three years of quite intense Icelandic medieval history. Um and then in the 10th grade, usually kids read their first Icelandic saga. Uh, okay. And they get a modern standardized spelling version. Uh, but it's, it's still Old Norse that they're reading. Uh, and they, of course, complain about the language because they, it's not really their own language. Uh, and the words don't mean the same thing. So they all they have these school editions with footnotes is like yeah so this word actually means this and they're like ah you know why can't we have this in like, modern icelandic they complain and the teachers then you know hey, this is you know this is practically modern icelandic <laughs> it's, it's <not. laughs> that's, that's the funny thing like you know the, the, i mean we all know that standard sort of uh, sort of like uh tourist thing that, that that you get right like modern icelandic is is like almost the same language as 
language that the Vikings spoke or something like that, right? Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to ask. You, <laughs> that, that's the one thing you hear over and over again, especially, I've, you know, I've heard it more times when people are talking about runes and they're kind of like, well, if you want to translate it properly, you've got to translate it to modern Icelandic and then, you know, from Icelandic then into runes. That's, you know, so I was going to ask how, how close is that to the truth? Uh, well, uh, it's the closest living language to Old Norse. Uh, okay, how how close is it? I mean, it's uh, uh, the pronunciation is totally different, um, but we can we can read it um, pretty well. Uh, it takes training, of course, um, and then of course, usually when you have rune carvings that are in an even older language, uh, that is quite alien to us. Uh, takes quite some expertise to understand rune carvings like in Denmark. Uh, I, for one, uh, really, I don't read runes, for example. Uh, we have runeologists uh, for that, like uh, Maya Beckwell. <laughs> yeah, Maya, yeah. yeah she, uh, she's a great runologist. Um, yeah, so a little bit of a background uh, information here. Argema and I, you know, Argument mentioned that he's been in Aarhus and, and so on. We we studied together, and of course we've studied with a bunch of other uh, cool people. And uh, yeah, Maya, as you mentioned, is uh, one of the other cool people that we've studied with at, at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but since uh, since I just had to put it in there that since you mentioned that uh, you know Icelanders boast about their language being so close to Old Norse and all that, uh, there are two classes and. Uh, the Icelandic BA program that have the highest number of dropouts is uh, basic literary theory and, and Old Norse, the language okay. course. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe maybe those like stories about how, how the Icelandic language is so close to that uh, Old Norse language maybe, you know, makes gets you a little disappointed or disillusioned if you if you think that it's going to be an easy ride taking an Old Norse course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what what I I think or what I what I thought. I mean in let's let's for example say when we were were in school and we were kind of in English class they would give us you know Shakespeare and it would be in old English and then in modern English. But you were able to read the the old English still or pick out certain words and make you know get the gist of it and kind of be able to decipher it. So I kind of just assumed that that was the same with with Old Norse and Icelandic that it was close enough that you know if you were Icelandic then you would be able to kind of read it and and make sense of it. Yeah, it's, it's similar, I think. Okay, so, but as you also mentioned, there's been a semantic shift, so a lot of you know, words, they've changed their meanings. And so you, you, you still need the footnotes to know that, for instance, and, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the absolute funniest example of this is in Gisla Saga, uh, which is one of the most popular sagas to read uh, with 10th uh, graders, uh, because it's, uh, it's available in short edition, and it's exciting. Uh, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, and so there's this uh, scene just uh, really early in the saga where it's said that uh, this guy, he is married to this to this uh, lady and 
that their marriage uh, was not long before they had children. And everybody burst out laughing because the word used for marriage was samfarish, which is uh, the word we have for sex in modernism. So they didn't have sex for long until they were having children everywhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I feel like I remember something like that in, in school as well. These, you know, words have changed the meaning and kids being kids, they can't help but giggle at silly words. <laughs> yeah. So you admit it, you have a, a Kickstarter that's kind of in process. I don't know. By the time this releases, I think it might have, have just ended. Um, and if you want to just tell us a little bit about it, I had a, a look at the campaign page today and it seems seems really interesting. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a book, Old Norse for Modern Times. And it's, uh, it's a similar concept as a book that I think is quite well known uh henry henry beard's sort of latin for all locations where it's basically all your typical modern stuff uh written out in old norse phrases uh like did you see the episode of game of thrones last night and uh, <laughs> stuff like that and um so it's not supposed to be a really serious book about you know how to actually say things in old norse it's more like uh it's uh, deliberately silly, and uh, and then of course it's quite difficult to translate these phrases properly into a language that you know is uh, nobody speaks anymore. Uh, and there are words, you know, that there are things now that never existed. Uh, I mean, there's something about um, a sentence about Freya's cats on YouTube, for example. Uh, okay. So you had to take the, you know, make a decision. Do I try to translate the modern term or do I just put it in there? And I figured yeah. like Icelanders, they, they don't translate words like YouTube. Uh, just, no. uh, and so I figured, you know, people in middle, middle ages wouldn't have either. So, so I just, I, I just have all these modern things in there. Uh, Sometimes the sentence is better translated as uh, just taking an actual phrase from a saga. So the context has changed. And for those who like sagas and read them a lot, they will uh, pick up on these little references and make the, the book more fun for them. And, and for other readers, of course, it wouldn't make any difference. So it's just, I, I've, I've taken, uh, taken some scaldic leave, if you will, with the, uh, with the phrases and, uh sort of yeah also just to make the work more fun for myself because it's a uh you have to enjoy your translations uh absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean i'm gonna put you on the spot and see do you have any examples from the from the book that's coming up yes i do let's see oh here's a sentence by emish icy balls uh, <laughs> And I translated this as with rim reviarimis. And let's see. Then there's it's raining cats and dogs. Uh, translated as köttum rigmir og hundum. It's fascinating to hear. <laughs> I'm going to try to find that whole uh, Freya sentence. Ah, yes, here it is. Okay, so the sentence in English is 
did you see that Freya's cats have gone viral on YouTube again? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, this was a fun one. So, Eyveitek, hvort fremt hefur þú að miklar dilgjur eru með mönnum á YouTube vegna köttu Freyju? I always find something quite comical about when you see a translation and there's just an English word or you know, like a company name stuck in there. <laughs> so, I mean, I assume those translations weren't a quick thing either. I imagine it takes a little bit of time to translate something like that. Yeah, yeah, I have to put yourself in a certain frame of mind. Although uh, I, I am in a bit of a practice because for the last few years I've been working, although really slowly, uh, for Michael Everson at Evertype on the Old Norse translation of Alice in Wonderland. Ah, okay. uh, and that is an intense challenge because you have to first figure out what sort of saga style you want to go for. And so I tried several and uh, I've sort of wound up with uh, sort of the uh, hagiographic style um, for some reasons. And I think it's quite funny. Uh, but if I hadn't been, you know, doing this uh, on the side, it would have been, you know, yeah, way harder to get into this all of a sudden. Right. Okay. So, uh, okay. Uh, you got to just give me a lowdown on that one. You you decided to translate Alice in Wonderland into the hagiographic style. So that's the saints, uh, saints' lives that, you know, the, yeah, like Tholak and, and so on, these well, there's Thorlak one and Thorlak two, and they were competing uh, these two Icelandic saints, right? I was say before you jump into that, I want to know what what, what did you say? Hieroglyphic? What, <laughs> what does that mean? Because no, no, hagiography is is uh, you know the lives of saints, right? Um, that's that's yeah. a particular style of sagas and and stories. Yeah, um, so I'm I'm sort of modeling I... this after. Uh, the saga of Bishop, uh, no, a saga of Guðmundur the Bishop. Ah. Okay, so does that follow like a certain pattern? I mean, you you two are obviously scholarly types and I'm just kind of this little kid that joined in on the chat and, and some of it, I'm just like, what? What does this mean? Oh, yeah, so it, it is basically uh, one of the oldest, uh, you know, uh, book traditions in Iceland. They They started to, translate out of latin these old uh you know legends of saints uh there was among the first things they were writing uh in the uh, uh 11th 12th centuries um, in europe and in then general, they... i mean that 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 style of literature is is you know one of the oldest types of literature in europe that's still in existence yeah and then they started to make their own like hey we have some cool christians here as well and uh, let's you know and then they wrote uh, saints' lives of uh, a, a few of the Icelandic bishops, and then they, of course, tried to get them properly acknowledged as uh, saints. And I think they finally succeeded with Thorlokur only in uh, maybe the nineties. I mean, the nineteen nineties. So. Yeah, I think uh, up until the twentieth uh, century, the only actually acknowledged saint of Scan in Scandinavia was. Uh, Saint Knut, the the Danish yeah. king who got killed in 
in the uh, church in in Odense. <laughs> what yeah. in ten eighty something? I think it was eighty five. Yeah. I can't remember. <laughs> and now we we finally also have one of our own. <laughs> and even though we have been violently Lutheran since fifteen fifty, when we beheaded the last Catholic uh, bishop in Iceland uh, and some of his sons, you know, just for good measure. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that, that was the Battle of Söderfell, right? Yeah, and then even still, we we always celebrate Thorlaug's Messa, the Mass of Saint Thorlaugur, every year. Which is, I mean, Icelanders are weird, and they don't really know anything about their own Christianity. I mean, ask somebody about doctrine in Iceland, they're like, I don't know, you know, maybe you know, just be kind and you know, show the other cheek and Jesus and something. So, I mean. <laughs> I think that's most so, people, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it certainly is. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so this, uh, you were asking about Alice in Wonderland. So that's, uh, it is, uh, I don't know if you heard about this, it is a huge project uh, that Evertype has been working on for many years now to translate Alice in Wonderland into every single known language, uh, including, uh, you know, dead languages um, wow. and so it, it's sort of like this uh, idea that if we just have one text in every possible language that would be really interesting and they chose Alice because it's uh, well it's famous and also widely uh, available in uh, vernacular uh, translations already so they don't have to really go into modern translations so much Okay. Uh, yeah, that has been translated already into like Old English and um, I think uh, Hebrew and many, many, many languages. I would um, love to read it in in, in ancient Hittite language, Sumerian. Like <laughs> so I mean, how long does something like that take? Because it's not a, a small book. It's not you know, it's not a small text. So it it seems like a really big job. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like uh, Michael told me, uh, if you trans if, if you translate the page a day, it might you know take you uh, a year or something. Um, okay. But uh, I've been working on this for three and a half years now, and he's probably you know uh, you know getting impatient, <laughs> waiting for my for my translation to uh, be ready. But it's just it's uh, so hard, it's really hard work and uh, to just get the tone right and uh and of course i'm not writing or you know translating into my native language even though it's quite close to my native language so it's a lot of work and the spelling has to be correct as well yeah do you when when you translate something like that do you kind of just go sentence by sentence and work your way through it, or do you have to like look at the page as a whole and the direction that it's going in to make sure that the next sentence lines up and doesn't lose context yeah, I, I that's that's really what I have to do. Uh, I mean, I started out sentence by sentence, like I was used to uh, with modern translations, and then uh, I figured out that wasn't really uh, sustainable. So I had to just read the whole thing uh, and and try to figure out sort of the overall direction I was taking it into. And I tried different saga styles, um, uh, and then. There's something about Alice and this whole sort of, uh, it's kind of like visionary literature. She goes into this hole and she, then she's transported into this other world and 
then she's led through it by her uh, guide, if you will, the, the white rabbit. And, uh, and then she comes out again in the end. And it's exactly like uh, medieval visionary literature in this uh, structure. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, uh, you know, except she isn't tormented by demons and doesn't come back with scars on her backs for being, you know, uh, for liking married men or something like that, <laughs> like you know, medieval style. Like yeah, and speaking so. of, of of visionary literature, medieval visionary literature, that's another type of uh, of, of literature that if um, that we know well from well both Old Norse literature and and Old English literature. Um, of course, uh, uh, you know the Mediterranean literature as well. Um, that's always that's been my my straight up my favorite. Uh, type of Christian stories, and I think uh, you know everybody knows Dante and his Inferno and all that stuff. That's 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 what that really is. Like um, Dante is the, the most popular version of that, but there are so many versions of these stories out there, and some of them get really funky, especially in 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 Old Norse literature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really, I really love this type of literature. I mean, I think. One of my favorite bits is in, I think it was Dukkal's List, right, which is a translation of Latin, Visio Tugnavi. Yeah. Uh, Dunstan, I think, is his name in English. Yeah. And uh, he comes across, uh, he's sailing, and he, he comes across this rock in the middle of the ocean, and, and Judas is sitting on it. And he only has this tiny little blanket to shield himself from the waves. And... Uh, <laughs> It's a really cruel torture, but this was actually his day off. <laughs> so he gets this day once a year through the mercy of Christ. To, otherwise, he's you know being dragged through fire for eternity. Right. But this this is uh, gets to cool off on the rock in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> How wonderful! Yeah. Some, some mercy right there. <laughs> I mean. To pull you back to like the translation, because I'm still trying to get, kind of get get a grasp of it. Now, how how long would it take to say translate a sentence? Just any kind of generic, you know, ten word sentence. So is there kind of like a time it t- takes to just, you know, I'm kind of lost as to how you know how it all works. Yeah, first I just uh, in my mind I have it translated to Icelandic. And then I I try to think what it would look like in an Icelandic family saga. Like if if somebody was you know saying the sentence out loud in uh, a saga setting, and then I just I, I write it out, and then I leave it for a while, and and then I come back to it and start to polish, see if it sucks. Most often my translations suck, uh, and then I. <laughs> Then I go back to it again and uh, fix it, and uh, and then it sort of gradually evolves, and then finally, when I'm happy with it, I I fix the spelling, and uh, I sort of like because you know the spelling keeps changing, and uh, one of the most uh, intense things they make you go through in the Old Norse class in the Icelandic BA program is sort of the uh, variations of pronunciation and spelling. Um, and 
and Islamic Fortre, the, the uh, sort of primary edition of these uh, Old Norse texts, uh, they try to keep uh, with this sort of tradition of like if if the editor thinks that a saga is written in uh, the 1300s, then the spelling will be uh, made out to look like that period and so forth. And I sort of like best the uh, uh, the language of uh, Islandinga book uh, written in. Uh, the early 12th century and i don't know why it's just a uh there's something about the spelling that is so uh old uh ancient almost and uh and everything becomes way funnier if it's spelled that way <laughs> how much does a, a saga style affect the translation i've mentioned a couple of different styles it's kind of like a very basic layperson like myself who has very limited understanding of this this type of stuff. The the the, the tune the tune is always uh, the same um, if it's done right at least uh, because you need to be able to recognize it regardless. Um, uh, so the, the 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 tune is the same, but uh, then they change the words and they you know what I've experienced is that it's usually as close as possible to the original meaning. Like once in a while, it gets a little weird here and there. Um, yeah, but, 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 yeah, generally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, is that, sorry to interrupt it. Okay. So, you know, this, making this type of translation, um that well that is also an art form in and of itself like what what you what you're doing is not just translating a bunch of words or a sentence to you know make sure that uh whomever doesn't understand the original language uh can you know understand the meaning what you're doing here is you're, you're creating a literary form uh of of this work in another language um which you know, it's very different. Like, so the translations that I've done over the years for different reasons, right, have usually been some Eddic poetry here and there for some, uh, you know, scholarly text, uh, some some analysis I was making somewhere or a book or whatever. And in that regard, you know, you don't, at least I don't go through that many steps of like, making the um the the text that i'm translating like you know sexy in that other language <laughs> right I, I, for me it's like okay so it's not a student and wrote something about i don't know uh ausgader midgader or something like that in uh in in his etta and i'm just finding that passage and i'm just translating it into like english or danish or something like that and it's just to make sure that the person that would read my my article here would understand the old Norse, you know. So yeah. it's like there's so many more steps, and there's so much more, you know, creative work that goes into you know making a good translation. Like the translations I do, they're not good; they're just functional, right? <laughs> it's a, it's yeah, a it's the uh, same with my translations that I, I'm used to doing in articles uh, like yourself. That <clears throat> I just try to get across what is being said. Um, and then sometimes it doesn't get across at all. 
<laughs> uh, true. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> yeah. How much of a how much of a right and wrong way is it to kind of translate back into something like Old Norse? I mean, I imagine translating from English English to French. You know, the modern languages. It's fairly sort of black and white, and that's the right translation, or that's not. So, with something that you do, how much kind of leeway is there, and is there even a, a hundred percent correct answer? Can I just add something here that just give you a good example of how translations don't work? Um, sometimes, it, like if you think of it in terms of like black and white, you can't just translate word for word, right? Because we like every language has idioms and you know, certain ways of phrasing things. And here's a great example of that. And I hope I can get the message across because uh, for those who don't understand Danish. But uh, yesterday I was watching Danish television. I was watching like this, you know, debate program. Um, and uh, this was about uh, the Danish debate on BLM, you know, Black Lives Matter and all that stuff. And these Danes, they were speaking Danish to one another, and they kept saying, we have to stand up for human rights, right? And they, they for, because Danish is so, like, absorbent English nowadays, right? Um, these Danes would say in Danish, we nødt til at stå up for uh, human rights, right? So yeah. literally, like, they're translating the English phrase here, stand up for. and. That more sounds like you're getting out of bed in Danish than yeah. you want to defend <laughs> human rights. So, so you see, if you if you are translating from one language to another language, right, and yeah. you just translate word for word, then you end up actually, you know, sometimes creating phrases that sound like an entirely different thing that's happening, right? Um, and of course, because I'm you know, conservative with the Danish language. I was like, you can't say that in Danish. <laughs> you people are like, what are you doing? <laughs> but of course, nowadays, the... I guess that that's what it means. <laughs> we had the exact same thing in Iceland. Actually, there's a song uh, competing to be the Eurovision Song Contest um, candidate for Iceland. It was called "Stahtu Up Fyrir Sjálfum Yeah, and I was like, yeah. So I'm gonna I, I'm gonna leave my chair so that I can also sit in it. <laughs> uh, but, but, but yeah i i, I really have, have to uh abandon uh phrases that i'm translating sometimes like i i can't really translate them as is and i have to do something else that in a certain context might mean the same thing uh which i think is a uh, is more fun than you know some of these phrases would be they wouldn't be much fun in old norse if they were just as the English phrases. So, uh, for example, there's this sentence here. Uh, Wagner has a lot to answer for. And and so I, I, I figured, okay. Uh, I mean, there is a phrase from Njalsaga where some guy is arguing at, uh, uh, at uh, Althingi for some sentence to be uh, passed. Uh, and everybody knows that he's wrong. But uh, but he manages to uh, to convince everyone uh, because he speaks more of uh, more with uh, with like fierceness than with any wisdom. So it's like he's just so adamant. <laughs> it's like we have to do this, uh, and he just uh, so he just gets everyone along with him. 
And so then I figured I could use this sentence here. So uh, Wagner has a lot to answer for. Meira mælti Wagner með kappi en með viti. So Wagner said, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, directly is like, uh, Wagner spoke more things with, uh, uh, with uh, passion than with any sense, you know. So I, I, I take saga phrases like that and, and implement them because it's, uh, I think it's more fun. Is that what you would do kind of first protocol would be to look look in the sagas for something that's similar to what you're translating? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely, I, I, I try to remember sort of these uh, famous phrases and uh, also in the hopes of uh, more seasoned readers of sagas to pick up on them and uh, get a small smirk on their face. Well, I mean, that's, that's part of the charm, right? So um, for, for those who aren't aware, like uh, so much of the saga literature um, has in different ways precipitated into you know, modern Icelandic culture, literature um, in different ways, right? The, you know, as for instance, you're quoting phrases like these. So like generally I'd say like, you know, somebody who's uh, learned in in this in some capacity, who knows a little bit uh, about all of this, right, would would like recognize such a phrase, right? And that's not just in 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 Iceland. That's also in Norway and Denmark. Um, although that would be in Norwegian and Danish, like you, like you, you tend to know a phrase or 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 some kind of quote from a saga here and there. So so, th so that's part of it too, right? Like that. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's also in that sense like a reference to existing culture. Yeah, exactly, and uh, and this is sort of the main reason why I I uh, I was enthusiastic about participating in this project um, because I, I I figured I mean it, it, you the translator must have a sense of humor about his work and uh, and I really enjoy uh, sort of fun translations over you know utility uh and i grew up in sort of the golden age of icelandic uh comic translations so in the 80s actually going back to the 70s we had translations of tintin uh lucky luke and all these different you know french uh or belgian uh comic books and as far as I'm concerned, the translations into Icelandic are far superior to the originals. And it's the same with Donald Duck. Donald Duck is not fun in English, not at all. But uh, you can't laugh at Donald Duck in English. But in Icelandic, he's fun. In Danish, he's fucking hilarious. And, uh, uh, and so we had Lucky Luke, for example. Uh, I mean, we still have phrases from Lucky Luke comics that we can utter in the street and people will recognize it. And, you know, um, and it was just, these translations were so brilliant and they were definitely not uh, accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all these different things were made Icelandic. And, and I think that the best example of how successful this is, is that many people think one part of uh it, you know there's the, this tintin book the uh 
mysterious star or something like that. Mm. Um, so there's a comet that comes and uh, and a part of the part of the book happens actually in Iceland. Uh, they go to Akureyri. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is that Icelanders didn't realize this. They thought this was a joke of the translators. Okay. <laughs> but it was actually in the original, so. <laughs> it, I mean, it's such a foreign thing for me to even think about translations, just because, you know, being an English speaker, being English, it's very rare that I have ever have to come across anything that's not made in English. You know, like all the all the Hollywood movies are in English. Most books are written in English. So obviously for for you two, you will have always had things translated into into Danish or into Icelandic. Whereas for me, it's just kind of something that's so so foreign. I mean, even even if I watched. I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess the closest thing would be watching a, a movie that was like a French movie or an Italian movie and, and the subtitles being in English. I guess that's the closest that I ever get to that kind of situation. Yeah. There's also this thing with, you know, translations, you know, um, uh, dubbed cartoons, for example, for kids. And uh, so Iceland started dubbing Disney films in the 90s. Uh and I was one of the really, really few who always liked the English versions better. So that's sort of my childhood is like Aladdin and Lion King in English. But everyone around me, they know the songs by heart in Icelandic. And and when I was living in Denmark, uh, I was I was in a college dorm with uh, only Danish people, and they had the Disney Club. So. The, the, I think it was uh, <laughs> Wednesday evenings. Uh, they would all sit by the TV and, and watch a new Disney film in Danish and sing along to the songs. And I was like, what? This all this is also here? I mean, <laughs> this must be... Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, this must be everywhere. So uh, so I, I, I always thought this was an Icelandic thing, you know? Uh, I, I, I never even thought about that. Translating... I mean, translating a song, do you do you have to come up with like a whole new tune for it? I don't know how like how well does it. The the, the, the tune the tune is always uh, the same um, if it's done right, at least uh, because you need to be able to recognize it regardless. Um, uh, so the, the the tune is the same, but uh, then they change the words, and they you know what I've experienced is that. It's usually as close as possible to the original meaning. Like once in a while, it gets a little weird yeah, in there. You have to get really creative um, sometimes. Yeah, but but yeah, generally, most times I see translations, especially looking at kind of your English to to Norse ones. Um, they always tend to be a lot longer. So I imagine like in a song, it's quite difficult to fit all those extra words in unless you sing really quick. Yeah, I uh, sometimes uh, in poorer Icelandic translations they have to do that. And, just, uh, just, <laughs> it's kind of like one of those adverts where they have the disclaimer right at the end, and they just say as fast as possible. They can't understand that you're probably going to like die or grow an extra arm or something. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like the Lion King song. I just can't wait to be king. And the sort of the end is 
is quite, you know, like to be king. So it's short and it's pointy. And the Icelandic version is, and so you have you have a two syllable word or kongur, and then a long uh, long vowel sound klaur, and it it just comes off wrong. It doesn't sound the same, uh, and that was the best they could do at, at the time. And this <laughs> this is the version that most Icelanders will be familiar with. I don't even know that song in Danish. Like I I. I know it in English for some reason. I I can't explain why. I, mean, I was never too much into that movie anyway. <laughs> you know, and all Hamlet with lions. Hamlet with lions, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Um, yeah, I'm trying to like think of like, good examples of like songs that have been, you know, translated into Danish. Um, but I I am just not not that well wandered in the popular culture sorry guys my my, my thing <laughs> it, it's the it, translation is getting less and less now it's kind of more people speak speak english is that something that's, that's kind of kind of happening i mean i guess with with popular songs you know like just normal pop music i i assume that just gets listened to in english they don't translate that yeah and uh and thankfully uh in my mind I, iceland is more you know, we just put subtitles on foreign films instead of dubbing them like, uh, like they do in, in France or in Spain. Um, like there was this other time living in a different dorm. Uh, I was living with like five people from Spain and they always watched Hollywood movies dubbed and, and, and they were watching Reservoir Dogs, like, you know, with really fast speaking Spanish dub. And I, <laughs> And I was like, why don't you try the original as well? I mean, and they're like, no, 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 no. I mean, these are the actors that we recognize to these faces. I mean, there's always the same actor who who dubs Harvey Keitel, for example. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, didn't even think about that. So yeah. you kind of get that familiarity. For, like for me, I will always go for subtitles over dubbed. Like for, dubbed just, I can't get my head around it. It drives me insane. It just reminds me of the that old kind of Bruce Lee style where the mouth's still moving and he's like, he's still talking. It just completely drives me drives me nuts. Poland has the most brilliant version of this. I absolutely can't watch Polish TV. Uh, <laughs> uh, they allow the original track to go on, but it's lowered, and then okay, and then comes the Polish guy repeating in Polish, and he is not acting. And so, oh, okay. no, just... <laughs> so I, I remember I was, uh, I was, uh, I turned on the TV and they had Return of the Jedi and, and, you know, Harrison Ford yelling like, Joey gone, you know, something. And then, you know, something, you know, over it. <laughs> just, just in normal spoken. Yes. And it's f- far louder than the original track. And okay. your mind is just being torn into two pieces. Like, ah, here's the Polish, here's the English. And, but yeah. apparently uh, Polish kids are used to this and uh, they can't, they have a hard time sometimes uh, watching, um, you know, Hollywood movies that don't have the voiceover. Wow. that would, it, I mean, I'm, I'm so spoiled. 
just you know <laughs> the, the old ignorant sort of British person who was just like, yeah, everyone kind of speaks English or at least <laughs> knows enough to get by if I speak English really slowly at them. <laughs> also, you yeah, you can't do like us, like have a your little secret language in public. Oh no, no, that that's true. But a funny, funny thing about uh, you know the weird relationship between Denmark and Iceland uh, is that you know usually when there's no virus, <laughs> uh, Icelanders travel a lot to Denmark, and then you will you'll find them in public talking loudly uh, uh, about you know the people around them because they rely on nobody understanding them, not realizing that. <laughs> At the people there, Icelandic. I was like, "What? Yeah, like, oh, what's up with that fat lady over there? God, that's so true." Like, Copenhagen, downtown Copenhagen in the summer, it's mostly Icelanders <laughs> talking loudly shit about other Icelanders. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. brilliant because <laughs> they think they're all Danes that don't understand them. Then they once in a while run into a Dane that would understand the shit that they're saying about them too. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> That's, that's so funny. <laughs> uh, so, so Mateus tells me you've been doing some research about monsters, and that, I nearly fell off my chair there. If anyone wondered why my voice just shot up when I said monsters, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Mateus says you've been doing you know a bit of research about monsters. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, so I, I I had this uh, dissertation proposal that was huge, and I was going to talk about everything in it pretty much like supernatural stuff all of that uh and all of the monstery things and and then uh my supervisor said yeah that's all very good uh for a life project uh let's just take one chapter out of this and write about that <laughs> and so i took the monster chapter okay uh, primarily because i was at that point reading so much about monsters um and uh, and then I sort of looked into it, and nobody had actually written about uh, about monsters in Old Norse. Uh, and when I figured out that there are several uh, encyclopedic texts from the 14th century that uh, you know these are as far from saga texts as possible. These are like the dry. Uh, almost sciencey texts of the era, although laden with Christian meaning, um, they would have these geographical treatises in them, uh, explaining the different you know countries of the earth and different continents, and the people living in each place, and many of them are monsters, and this was interesting. And then I, uh, it turns out that. These are actually descriptions that are derived from Pliny the Elder, who was writing in the first century common era before perishing in the volcanic eruption. Um, and he actually had the idea from Herodotus, who was writing in the fifth century before common era. Uh, so this is quite ancient. And mm -hmm. we have these... Uh, we have whole nations of deformed people with, uh, for example, the Blemies. They don't have heads. Uh, instead, they have faces on their chest and the arms coming out of their sort of foreheads. 
uh, in a way. And okay. uh, we have uh, uni pets, you know, the people with a single large foot. <laughs> yeah, we have dogs' heads, and they they don't have a language; they just bark. Um, and then they get conflated with uh, Muslims in the Middle Ages, in some. Uh, and this was what really hooked me. And I also found that there's a reason why the skiopods appear in uh, in the sagas of the Vinland explorations because uh one of the manuscripts that i found uh claims that vinland is part of africa it's just it's like a this uh it's connected to it by land bridge or something and that makes sense because the skiopods were always in western africa um yeah well, it also makes sense in in the worldview right because they literally like thought of the world as a disc yeah with um you know, where everything was connected on the outside of the ocean. Mm. So it makes sense that, you know, Africa would be connected with, well, what would essentially be North America. Uh, yeah, they, I mean, they were quite certain that they had not found a new uh, continent because their Christian texts explained that they were three and they were three. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, then the three sons of Noah each inherited one continent and so forth. Um, but yeah, so this uh, this thing then led me into you know first figuring out that Icelanders were really interested in Plinian monsters, and then that led me into thinking about this in race term. Um, and so I've been for the past few years I've been looking at monsters more through the lens of uh, proto racism, um, and. Uh, I'm currently writing a book proposal uh, and looking for uh, an academic publisher uh, who would be interested in uh, publishing a book that would be called Race and Racism in Old Norse Literature. And uh, so I, I was going to write an English version of my dissertation and have that published, but then I figured out that I can't really do that until I have first written the race book because they are so racially charged. I mean, we have, we have, for example, Blaumen in Old Norse. These are just uh, literal translation, blue men. And the color blue can denote any sort of bluish, blackish, uh, uh, dark uh, tint. Uh, and they, I mean, these, these uh, black men in, in the sagas, they are probably the most monstrous humanoid figure of all of them. And they are often completed with uh, characters from Pliny, such as the Blemies. Uh, there is one saga that mentions that there are Blaumen and Blemies fighting in the same army. Um, and they're, they're so uh, animal-like. They're 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 made more animal than human, and they don't seem to possess a language. And sometimes they are also conflated with with Muslims. Uh, so it's a it's a really broad term. Uh, I found many many different meanings of it. Sometimes it uh, has a connotation of the demonic. Um, and uh, so yeah, I have two articles actually uh, out this year on this topic. Um, but Agrimar, um, when you say race and racism, 
Um, you know, racism implies a, a system where, you know, people are tiered in racist and there's a hierarchy and some are excluded, some are included and so on. Um, do you think that that is what these texts represent in that regard? Or do these texts perhaps more, which is what I would suggest, represent, you know, the inherent lack of knowledge about other peoples and cultures that exists among the intellectuals of Iceland at the time. Yeah, well, I uh, from what I uh, from what I think, at least uh, based on on uh, these texts, it seems to me that it's really a, a similar thought that then really precedes modern race theory, uh, because they have um, they have the idea of this. Uh, these are all hereditary qualities, and yeah. they're also based on uh, on geography and climate. So, uh, if you're born in uh, a certain part of the world, uh, the climate will affect your appearance and your morals. And but there's also the hereditary part because, like Africa, is the continent um, that uh, Noah's cursed son uh, Ham. Uh, got and and all his descendants are the are the Africans, and so they are mm. by their very nature cursed uh, before they're born. And yeah. uh, so it, it's uh, of course it's it's really complicated and just like uh, saying just yeah racism existed is you know it's more complicated than that, and that's why I wanted to write a whole book about uh, this argument that we can find this pre racial thought. Uh, existing in these texts, um, and of course, like you said, it's also a matter of not really knowing much of anything about these people that they're writing about. Uh, I have absolutely no contention that any Icelandic saga writer ever met a black man, even though they do write mm. about them. Uh, mm. And I think they're basing it off, uh, well, different types, uh, mythological figures like the wild man for example also the uh uh this uh ancient tradition the uh plinian monsters and right and it gets mixed in with the climate theory and and all that stuff so it's a uh, um i am hoping that the book will not be too long but you know <laughs> that's what i always hope <laughs> and, and i I mean, I, I think it's a really important topic, and uh, I mean, there, there there have already been investigations of uh, you know medieval attitudes to race, you know, proto racism uh, in in other contexts, like in other cultural contexts. Yeah, I, I think it's an important work for for uh, Old Norse studies, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and there's so much to explore in that. Um, and obviously, what we are seeing when uh, modern racism emerges uh with uh with the transatlantic uh, slave trade and what we're seeing is the application of these things that they know from you know uh the, those medieval texts right then so 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 it makes sense uh to investigate what is what is actually happening how is it how how does this phenomenon exist in in a in a pre um sort of like a pre-globalized world right yeah exactly before or the Europeans are are out there colonizing. Exactly, and there are many excellent books already out, like uh, 
Benjamin Isaac, uh, the uh, invention of race in classical antiquity, and now Geraldine Heng with uh, her medieval race book. And uh, and Cord Whitaker just published uh, a book. Uh, I just bought it. What's it, what's it called? It was called Black Metaphors. That's right. Uh, and then I, I, when I speak to my old Norse colleagues, I uh, about these things, I, I, I felt like there's much work needed to be done there uh, with this respect because it's not really a discussion that has been going on at all. It's more in. Oh no! I mean, yeah, it's more in. We we, we have the tendency of thinking that you know Northern Europe is is like untouched by all of that stuff, right? Yeah. That's not really the case, though. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah. So while medieval studies in general is moving into this direction of investigating these things, uh, uh, nothing has been done in Old Norse yet, except for uh, the handful of articles. And of course, uh, I mean, Richard Cole uh, wrote his dissertation and several, several articles on uh, Jews in Old Norse uh, literature more uh to the point the lack of them mm, uh, yeah and uh so uh, at least some of us are moving in uh, toward this now and uh, uh yeah i think it's good i think there are exciting times ahead of us and uh, applying you know, critical race theory to uh, old norse texts and see what comes out of it maybe maybe we'll uh, come to a different conclusion in the end than I have at present, but we'll just have to see. So I'm I'm actually interested in in um, hearing your answer to this question. So a uh, figure like Geirmundur Heliaski, uh, um, what do you think he is? Yeah, so I mean, I've seen uh, some. Uh, who was it? It's an Icelandic scholar. There's been like a couple of examples of, of, of Icelandic scholars trying to demonstrate how the uh, Old Norse literature was actually like inclusive, and and there were like non-white uh, heroes like Gamenders uh, and so on. Yeah. Um, and I, I haven't been particularly. Uh, impressed by their argumentation here to be honest i, I don't I, I can't say that i necessarily like will accept what they're saying on, that that these were you know that that, that the old norse literature was inclusive basically yeah. that's kind of you know what i've been hearing here when when they've been talking about this i i wanted to hear your opinion on that so yeah i remember just, that... before you you do are you able to give a little bit more background into who that is matthias yeah, so the game of the uh, Heliaskin, his name, uh, his by name, Heliaskin, means hell's skin. And hell, the goddess of the underworld, is known as a, a darkened skin on the one side, at least. So it's taken as, as meaning that he has dark skin. And so the, the general, like, at least one argument I've seen about this figure and there's a couple of others who are also known as sort of like having darker skin um, in, in various um, uh, literary contexts from the medieval period in Iceland. So Germander, he's taken like the sort of like the prime example of a non-white person in uh, an old Norse Icelandic context, right, in the medieval period. And some have argued, oh, this is an example of like they did exist in Iceland. 
uh, they did exist in Scandinavia. They they were there, so to speak. Um, and I I'm not I'm not convinced by those arguments. Um, but on the other hand, I'm not like excluding the idea either. Like uh, it's possible, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, at, at least I know that uh, Bergsjöt Birkisson has uh, written about Germantur. Uh, he he has been wondering why there is no uh, whole saga of him. He's only a small character in in uh, a couple of sagas, um, and uh, maybe that sort of proves the opposite point. That you know why why is there no saga of him? I don't know. Maybe maybe that has something to do with this <laughs> artist, but no, I wouldn't go that far. But anyway, he um, uh, I th I think that uh, he was supposed to be. Uh, a half uh, Norwegian and half Karelian, and so that his uh, his uh, I can't remember mother or father was um, uh, you know of really of uh, Mongolian heritage or something like that, mm -hmm. and uh, and it's really interesting and and uh, I know that Bergson has noted that. It is said of Germantur that he is one of the uh, most noble uh, settlers uh, of Iceland, and that that is uh, what is uh, said of him uh, in at least one text, maybe a couple. And then we know nothing more of him, really. Um, so he's been sort of wondering what's up with this, and he's written a whole book uh, looking into this guy, and then he's actually written uh, a saga. He's just he decided to write the saga of this guy. And Okay, cool. <laughs> and, and it's presented like an Islandsk Fortred edition with a, mm -hmm. a fake uh introduction, like a scholarly introduction. Um and and then the saga is written in uh you know this whole uh of course uh Icelandic saga style with the proper spelling and all. And many Icelanders actually thought that this was an edition of, of the of this lost saga. So I, I thought that was pretty neat. Like first, uh, write your monograph on, on him, wonder why he doesn't have a saga, then write, just go ahead and write the saga. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've often wondered about this guy and his uh, hellish skin. And uh, uh, at least there, I mean, there's nothing negative about him. Uh, but uh, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, he and his brother, who shares this skin with him, he uh, they're they're hidden away at first because the uh, the mother doesn't want the father to see them uh, looking like that, and so she hides them away and brings in this fake kid. Like, oh yeah, this is this is the actual kid. <laughs> uh, so there is something you know about the appearance that she does not like, but. When, was indicates that yeah i mean it doesn't seem like they would have a scandinavian parent so well i mean you know this could also be a skin condition mm. of some kind yeah um i think as as far as i remember in finn jonsson's uh uh you know uh, uh, he's he's got a sort of like a list of all the different physical traits that are being mentioned in, in throughout the, the whole literature. Yeah. I think there are, there are 15 
or 16, 17 uh, counts of a, a skin color, uh, non-white skin color or something like that, uh, that I found. Um, so, so it's actually, it's, it's not just limited to, to, to those two guys. Um, uh, there are others who are also noted to have uh, some, some, some symptoms of non-white uh, skin color. Um, and I, you know, if we look at it, uh, you know, broadly, uh, what what kind of um, uh, what kind of scenarios could we see uh, non-whites showing up in in Scandinavia and in Iceland and so on? Right? I mean, there there are plenty of possibilities. Uh, you mentioned you know this the possibility of government of having a Karelian uh, uh, heritage. Um, so so that could be uh, you know, as you said, Mongolian, but perhaps more likely that uh, Evenki, uh, Yukaki, uh, there, there, there are several, you know, Asian populations in, in the, uh, that area yeah. or close to that area, so to speak. Uh, it's all relative in that regard, but, but, you know, where there could be, you know, Scandinavians could have, you know, interactions with different uh, Asian populations. Yeah. And uh, I think that the, the saga showed that they did. Um, yeah. Even though, of course, the uh, the uh, legendary sagas are not by any means uh, historical uh, texts, uh, they do show uh, at least the knowledge of these people in that area, and that and then they are sort of denigrated to trolls in many sagas there, and then they're just you know they're sort of as fodder for the hero who just cuts them down repeatedly and they're described as primitive people in uh, skin clothing and uh, you can often just see their visible genitalia hanging you know through their uh sort of oh yeah that's the thing skin yeah. breeches <laughs> and and they're called yeah. trolls um yeah and I, I i don't think that these are actually you know trolls like Norwegian mountain trolls or something like that. I think, I think that this is a, one of the, the ways that dehumanization is portrayed in the sagas. Yeah. I mean, we also have, you know, well-documented historical uh, interactions between Scandinavians and uh, peoples of the Middle East and Central Asia. And we know this, that, that uh, Scandinavians traveled to uh, the Russian area, to the Caspian Sea and traded um, with the caliphate, uh, for instance, and, and elsewhere in Central Asia. Um, we are also well aware of the fact that uh, Mediterranean pirates found their way up through, um, you know, the, uh, the, the North Atlantic at, at multiple instances in history. I mean, there, there, there are plenty of ways in which Icelanders could have interacted with uh, peoples who who had darker skin tones mm -hmm. than the ones that they were familiar with. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know, naturally, I guess if 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 your if the nature of your your interactions, like the you know the piracies, the Vestmanaya, uh, and so on, yeah. are, are you know unfriendly, uh, you would also tend to, I guess, you know, uh, mark these peoples as, as unfriendly in your literature. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah, I, I, but uh, yeah, no, it's 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 a really interesting subject. Um, obviously, I think I, I think we could safely say that there, are no no Scandinavians had sort of like an implicit 
idea that they needed to preserve their particular brand of whiteness. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the 900s or in the 1200s, for that matter. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, I think that feels like a, a a good natural point to wrap this wrap this one up. Um, I mean, thank you very much for for coming on. I've definitely learned a lot about translation. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. It's been really fun. So, I mean, I, I just took a, a quick look, and the the Kickstarter ends in in twelve days. So, this episode will be out before before that ends. So, for anybody anybody listening that, that might be interested in the book, you can go and support it by going onto Kickstarter, tab into the search engine there. Um, but it, the, the book's called Old Norse for Modern Times. And, you you know, there'll be a bunch of different uh, ways you can back the project and, and help support. Support it so it can get made. We'll put um, uh, the links for it as well in the show notes. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Sure that, uh, everybody can find it. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Artemir. It was great to talk to you again. Yeah, thank you. It's been you. a while. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for joining us.